Let us worship God. Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Let us pray. O Lord, our God, we come to thee to worship and adore thee. We thank thee that by thy grace thou hast made us thy children and thy people, members of the household of faith. We thank thee that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ is with us all the days of our life to surround us with thy providential care. We thank thee for the joy of our salvation, and we pray that the love of our Lord Jesus Christ and thy protecting care may be with us all the days of our life to make the way straight before us, to overthrow the powers of darkness, and to establish thy kingdom in and through us. In Christ's name, amen. Our scripture this morning is Leviticus 22, 26 through 33. Our subject, the bread of God, the bread of God, Leviticus 22. 26 through 33. And the Lord spake unto Moses, saying, When a bullock or a sheep or a goat is brought forth, then it shall be seven days unto the dam, and from the eighth day and thenceforth it shall be accepted for an offering made by fire unto the Lord. And whether it be a cow or you, ye shall not kill it, and are young both in one day. And when ye will offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving unto the Lord, offer it at your own will. On the same day it shall be eaten up, ye shall leave none of it until the morrow. I am the Lord. Therefore shall ye keep my commandments and do them. I am the Lord. Neither shall ye profane my holy name, but I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord which hallow you, that brought you out of the land of Egypt to be your God. I am the Lord. These laws are a repetition of laws given previously, and they are repeated again in some instances in Numbers and Deuteronomy. They are also repeated at times elsewhere in Leviticus. Because of this fact, Many commentators tend to pass over them with brief references to their previous citations or their forthcoming citations. And this is a very curious fact. Go to some commentators and look up the reference in Exodus. You're referred to Leviticus, and in Leviticus you're told it was in Exodus and will be in Numbers and Deuteronomy all of which tells you nothing except that the laws are repeated. Now, it is important to understand what this means. When we repeat ourselves, 
we do so for emphasis. We want to be then particularly heeded, not ignored. And very often we will repeat something three or four times, or more often, because we want the person we're telling this to to say, now, be sure to pay attention. I regard this as important. Repetition, thus, is an important teaching device. It is an important aid to the memory. It is used by us constantly to provide emphasis. But when it occurs in the Bible, strangely, it is not heeded. But it is purposive. It is important. Now, modern man finds what God has to say boring, unless it offers him some benefit. We are humanistic. As a result of the fall in which every man seeks to be his own God, even when we are redeemed, our focus tends to be on ourselves so that what God says that meets our needs, meets our concerns, is very important to us. We think God is right on target at that point. But if God says something, no matter how often he says it, that is not to our taste, not according to our interest, we bypass it. These are not, therefore, to be bypassed, these laws. They are not sentimental laws, as some would have them, but theological. The calf or the lamb was not to be sacrificed on the same day as its mother. One was not to see, as a part of the same type of law, a kid in its mother's milk. Again, we are told elsewhere, a bird and her young could not both be taken at the same time. Parallel to these rules, trees could not be destroyed wantonly in wartime. Noah was required to preserve all animals in the ark. There are many such laws that parallel part of this chapter. Porter, while somewhat modernistic, was still on the right track when he said, and I quote, Domestic animals were part of the community, and so their birth was surrounded by the same taboos as with humans. Unquote. Paul expressed it far better when he said in Romans 8, 19 through 22, For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. 
because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth until now. Now most commentators avoid the full meaning of Paul's words. Calvin, however, was the best in this regard. He was insistent on two things in this passage in Romans 8. First, that beasts as well as the plants and metals will all share in the great restoration of all things. Second, Calvin, while holding fast to this meaning, made clear that we have no license for speculations about the details of the fact that all creation is going to be in the great resurrection. He declared, and I quote, But he, God, means not that all creatures shall be partakers of the same glory with the sons of God, but that they, according to their nature, shall be participators of a better condition, For God will restore to a perfect state the world now fallen together with mankind. But what that perfection will be as to beasts as well as plants and metals, it is not meet nor right in us to inquire more curiously. For the chief effect of corruption is decay. Some subtle men, but hardly sober-minded, inquire whether all kinds of animals will be immortal. But if rains be given to speculations, where will they at length lead us? Let us be content with this simple doctrine, that such will be the constitution and the complete order of things, that nothing will be deformed or fading. Unquote. Now there is another interesting aspect about this law, the law of circumcision required that the rite be performed on the eighth day. The law of sacrifice prohibited the sacrifice of animals before the eighth day. And the parallel is an obvious one. While man is created in the image of God, he is still a creature. He is still one part of creation. But there is still another important aspect to these laws. In Leviticus 22:25, the verse preceding that which we read, all the sacrifices are called the bread of your God. This is a very telling phrase. Bread is used figuratively to mean sustenance the sustenance of life. Now the question then is, what is sustained? Obviously, it is not God. God does not grow weak from lack of sacrifice, but rather strong in his wrath and judgment. It is the covenant relationship of man with God which is sustained by sacrifice, by offering, by thanksgiving, by our day-by-day living. 
The sacrificial system is at heart atonement. This is basic to the law. And it is the redeemed of God who are faithful and obedient to it. The reality of the covenant relationship which rests on atonement is demonstrated by obedience, the bread of God. Remember what Micah says in Micah 6, verses 6 through 8. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good. What doth the Lord require of thee but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God? Offerings in general are called the bread of God in Leviticus and Numbers, and there are references to it in Ezekiel and Malachi. Leviticus 3.11 and 16 use the term for the thank offering. Leviticus 22:25 applies it to the burnt offering and the thank offering together. The term the bread of God appears again in the New Testament in John 6:32 through 35. Our Lord declares himself to be the bread of God come down from heaven. The bread is the sacrifice which marks atonement and communion, communion with God. Bread is sustenance. And Jesus Christ, the bread of God, is the sustenance of our covenant relationship with God. It is he who establishes it with his sacrifice. It is he who maintains it with his perfect obedience. It is Christ in his atonement and in his care for us, in his perfect obedience, and in his responsibility as our head who is our sacrifice of obedience. Paul, therefore, summons us as members of the body of Christ to be a living sacrifice in our holiness and our service to God and his covenant community. Now, it is an interesting fact that while a very young animal cannot be used as a sacrifice. There is no age limit on the acceptable sacrifice. Only the requirement of health. It must be an unblemished animal. There is no retirement, in other words, in the service of God. In verse 32, God declares, I will be hallowed among the children of Israel. I am the Lord which hallow you. Hallow appears in some versions as sanctify. Its main usage now is in the Lord's Prayer, hallowed be thy name. 
It means to sanctify, to dedicate, to consecrate, and much more. It is an interesting note that Jewish authorities at the time of Christ held that the highest form of hallowing God's name is martyrdom. In Hadrian's day, somewhat later, so many Jews were ready to be martyred that for a time it imperiled the existence of the Jews. The rabbis then declared that only with respect to idolatry, incest, and murder should death be preferred to transgression. Now this is an interesting point because Historians have often remarked about the readiness of some of the early Christians to be martyred. Not all were ready to be martyred, but some were. And we can understand it when we understand the Jewish background of the church and how many of the early converts were Jewish. They died to hallow God's name by their faithfulness. To hallow God's name by refusing compromise with evil still goes on today. This past week I was at a trial in the state of Maine. It is interesting to me to note that in these trials there is a curious fact that stands out. Back in the 20s, it was the communists who were seen as the great threat to the life of the United States. Now it's the Christians who refuse to compromise to the state and its regulations. And they are treated as subversives, as a menace, as people who threaten the life of the state. It is ironic that in New England, where Thoreau made civil disobedience an article of faith, civil disobedience is permitted in the hands of environmentalists, anti-nuclear people and radicals generally, but strongly resented on the part of Christians. The sacrificial system begins with atonement. It is basic to the law. It is the redeemed of God who are the faithful, who are the obedient. And therefore, the world hates them with a special hatred because they represent an obedience which goes beyond the present, beyond time, beyond anything these people can understand. So a humanistic civil disobedience is to them understandable, but a theological one is not, because it involves a sacred It involves declaring in action, Hallowed be thy name. The world rejects 
that premise. So that at the very beginning of the Lord's Prayer, our Lord teaches us something that the world is intensely hostile to. A faith, a premise, a reality which transcends time and history and which must govern time and history. Any other type of civil disobedience can in time be absorbed into the life of the state. There can be an accommodation to it, but not this, because it is always at odds with the sovereignty of the state. It can never compromise with it, and therefore, the state's hostility will not cease as long as the state is humanistic. But this is what Scripture means by the bread of God. Jesus Christ is supremely the bread of our God. It is he who establishes that perfect link between God and man, who sets the pattern of transcendence which must govern our lives. We are not governed by time and history, but by what comes from beyond time and history, the Word of God, the truth of God. And the bread of God is he who declares, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And at no point can we define the way, the truth, or the life in terms of anything that comes from man? To hallow God's name, therefore, means to live in terms of God, not in terms of time and history. Let us pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank Thee that our manna, Jesus Christ, is come, that He is the bread from heaven, that for us He is eternal life, and that He gives us the power to stand up against the powers of humanistic statism to challenge this world order in terms of thy truth, and to become more than conquerors in him who loved us. Make us strong in him and resolute in thy service. In Christ's name, amen. Are there any questions now about our lesson? Yes. What are the legitimate grounds for civil disobedience by Christians? And if there are some, are these also grounds for going beyond civil disobedience to revolution? Yes. Christian uh, civil disobedience must be God-centered. In other words, I do not believe that where our interests are concerned, we do have the right to disobey, for example, with regard to taxes. 
But if they interfere, for example, with the freedom to tithe, then we would have grounds for civil disobedience. It has to be God-centered. It has to involve obeying God rather than man, in particular in those things that concern God and his work. The freedom of his kingdom, the freedom of his church, the freedom of his Christian school, in these areas, not in what particularly concerns us. Yes. This was a great argument before, not argument, but a difference between Calvin and Knox. Calvin felt that we could outlast evil rulers, and therefore we had no right to disobey. And Knox took the Old Testament view that it was an offense to God to serve under those who didn't believe in him. And uh, that was what launched the Scottish Revolution. That is the fundamental uh, basic religion that led to the War of Independence. That is the basis of the American attitude toward revolution, which has now been subverted and distorted. So that's the reason that the early Americans believed in revolution. It's since been held up as a, as a matter of taxes only. A tax rebellion instead of a religious rebellion. One of the areas uh, that... Uh Douglas Kelly has been working on is precisely this. The fact that Calvin did not degree, uh, differ from Knox except in degree. Namely, he felt that there was no readiness on the part of the people in Geneva to do more than to be instructed and prepared to make a stand. They were a long ways from that. And some of the uh, translation that he's been involved in has been of uh, sermons late in Calvin's life that went into the scriptural premises for resistance. But it could not be a resistance apart from constituted authority. In other words, some branch of civil uh, government, a civil magistrate had to say, the state here is lawless, and therefore I raise the banner of the law. Well, practical in that, because revolutionists don't come from the street. They always come from the offices of government. Mm-hmm. And Knox, in a sense, uh, followed that premise because he worked with the nobility. Any Yes. Yes. If those letters that Douglas was translating are published, that would be a very important contribution. Yes. Uh, a number of scholars have already borrowed. <laughs> his uh, typed manuscripts to uh, give lectures at historical uh, meetings. And I don't know why Douglas hasn't uh, 
push to get them published. Yes. He wants it published under the auspices of some learned society. I don't think it makes any. Yes. Having been involved in the pro-life movement, um, I can understand the frustrations of people who see nothing happening and no progress or very little progress being made. And I'm wondering what your feeling is about bombing of abortion clinics, for example, when people just see no other alternative. I cannot see bombing these abortion clinics. I can see what many are doing with their street picketing. It has cut abortions dramatically. And by sending, setting up abortion counseling centers, again, it has been very effective. Uh, positive action is needed. Now, we do have the legal grounds to uh, prosecute according to some legal authorities, abortionists. Because in those states having the common law still, it is punishable by death. And the Supreme Court decision did not affect common law, only statutory law. So there is a basis there. Yes. I also have the feeling that they're violating the limits. They're not supposed to abort beyond a certain period of time. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure that they're abiding by that. They are not abiding by it. Well, that could be grounds for action on a statutory basis. Yes, yes. The problem thus far has been that uh, district attorneys are not ready to do anything about it. Well, then you can set up a move to impeach the district attorney. Mm -hmm. Well, this is what... You make enough of the nuisance of yourself in the courts. Yes. You can change the situation. We have not exhausted the available alternatives by any means. One of the problems has been that the pro-life groups are so busy quarreling with each other. Yes. Well, they try to equate this with the abolitionist movement, and it's a bad example because the abolitionist movement led to the tragedy all the way around. Mm -hmm. Well, what they're failing to recognize about this movement is that uh, it is a resistance to totalitarianism. I received a packet of material this week from Washington, D.C. on how uh, euthanasia is now rec regularly practiced. And uh, the courts are even recognizing it as a necessity. They are obstructing efforts to prevent it. And in a number of instances, it is uh, marked by dishonesty. In one instance, 
uh, preparations were made to uh, end the life of a patient uh, on the grounds that he had asked for it. And someone got to the man in the hospital and asked, did you ask for euthanasia? And he said, no. So this is the kind of thing that is now taking place. And as uh, Charles Rice wrote in his book of a few years back, he anticipated by the 90s, if, or by the end of the 90s, healthy, unwanted people would be executed because the definition of a person now is legal, not medical, and they can be declared to be non-persons. This is what we're moving towards. It's unfortunate that there has been very little attention paid to what Rice wrote in his book. Well, if there are no further questions, let us bow our heads in prayer. Our Lord and our God, we thank Thee that we live, move, and have our being in Thee. That it is thy will that shall be done, and thy kingdom, not that of man, that shall come. Therefore, our Father, we work, we pray, we wait for thy kingdom. Bless us day by day in thy service. And now go in peace, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Ghost. Bless you and keep you guide and protect you this day and always. Amen.